The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Hope you brought your Bible with you. If you did, you can turn to Esther chapter 5. We're going to try to tackle three chapters today if we can. It's going to be our goal. Hope you've had a blessed week. Hope you've had a good weekend. Amanda and I were able to be a part of a wedding yesterday and a couple graduation parties. It was, we don't always get to do that. It can be difficult sometimes to get to those things, but it was a blessing to be a part of those, see some church family at those different events as well, enjoying each other's company and some good food at those things. And I hope that you've been able to do some stuff with your families as well. I know we have. Esther chapter 5, like I said, we're going to try to do 5, 6, and 7 this morning. I know that's a lot to cover, but it doesn't make sense to stop at chapter 6. Uh, it's just kind of, it'd be a weird break in the story, and so I don't want to do that. So we're going to try to push through to, to three chapters. So look with me in Esther chapter 5. I want to read first verses 1 through 8. It said, Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the, in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, my petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Well, let's stop there. If you remember at all the story of Esther, this isn't the first banquet or the first party that we've seen. It's actually been a a book about parties, a book about get-togethers. That's what we've seen taking place. And where we find ourselves this morning in this story, if you haven't been here maybe in the weeks leading up to this, what has happened is uh, Haman has talked to the king, and actually a law has been declared that all the Jews were going to be slaughtered in just a short time, just a short time that's going to happen. So Esther, being a Jew, even though nobody knows it at this time, is approached by Mordecai, her family member, and they have a discussion of maybe what could be done. And at the very end of, of chapter four, if you remember, Esther says some very brave words. She, she tells Mordecai, I will go before the king, and if I die, I die. That's okay. Because she knows that going before the king without being summoned by the king could very well equal death. It's not something that you are allowed to do, even being being the queen. And so she knew that she would need to approach him maybe in in a certain way, and she just had hopes that he would point that golden scepter at her, which meant that he accepted her into his presence and that she could come forward. And so I mentioned that she said, if I, if I perish, I perish, or if I die, 
I die. Again, we see the gravity of what was happening and what was taking place. And she asked Mordecai to tell all of the Jews to fast for her. And so what I just read and what you saw was really an answer to prayer that took place. Again, we don't see prayer mentioned, but we do see fasting. And we see that as Esther goes to the king, that the prayer was, was answered of how she wanted it. And notice how Esther does this, though. When Esther approaches the king, she does it with humility and she does it with great subtlety. Right? She doesn't approach it uh, in a way that would be maybe against the king or she doesn't say, you know what, I'm queen. I'm going to use my might. I'm going to use my authority in this situation. We don't see her doing that. No, with her life on the line, she's not going to act brashly or with uh, too headstrong. Instead, scripture tells us that she wears the appropriate clothes that would be expected of her. She stands away from the king and just waits until she is noticed. That's what she does. So again, we see great humility here. Now in this, the king notices Esther. The king sees her, notices her, and he holds out the golden scepter to her. And this allows her then to approach him and to talk to him. And notice what the king does. He's obviously happy that he sees Esther because he, he says, what is it? What is you want? Up, up to half of my kingdom. Now, this is, this is something that is actually uh, pretty common. You would see this said throughout scripture. I don't think it actually meant that he would give her half of his kingdom. It was just saying, what do you want? I, I, I'm going to be gracious to you. I, I want to give you something. So what are you here for? What are you, what are you asking for? We see this in other places of scripture. Actually, if you, you might be reminded of the, the story with John the Baptist and King Herod, John chapter 14, verses six through 10. You remember on Herod's birthday, uh, the daughter of Herodias goes and dances before him and says, what do you want? Up to half the kingdom, what do you want? And you remember he, she said, I want John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. And it said the king actually didn't want to do this, but everybody heard him say, what do you want? And this is what she asked for, so then, it was, so then it was done. And so again, this isn't something that was necessarily uncommon in this day. But Esther's response is not what we would think would happen, is it? I mean, she's going to the king to try to spare her people. That's the plan all along. If you get to be in the presence of the king, if he talks to you, tell him. This is not a good idea to kill all the Jews, Tell him who you are. Try to appeal to him to, to change the law or, or to, to think of something else. But instead, there's kind of a little twist here in the story. Because Esther says, well, I want to throw a banquet, king, just for you and for Haman. Now, again, why Haman? He's the worst. He's the one that you should actually hate. He, he's the one that it devised this whole plan. And Esther knows this, but yet we see Esther invites the king and Haman to this party. Then she gets another opportunity. Soon into the party, again, it is asked of her, what do you want? I'll give you up to half of the kingdom. And a second time she responds in a way that we wouldn't think she would, but she says, hey, I'm gonna throw another party for you tomorrow. Will you please come to it. And if you do, then I, I will tell you what I'm looking for. I'll tell you what I want. Now for me, I mean, missed opportunity here all over the place. He, he's giving you whatever you want. Just say it. Stop with the parties. Stop, stop with the humility here. 
I mean, really, if you look at it, you might think she's wimping out. That's what's happening, right? She's, she's wimping out. She's scared of what might happen or what might take place if she says what's really on her mind. And so she's, she keeps buying herself time. I mean, it can easily be seen that way. Well, let's continue on verses nine through 14. We kind of jump to Haman here. It says, so Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. Of course, right? Him and the king, the only people at this party by the queen. Of course he's happy. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Verse 13. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all the friends said to him, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Again, as we finish chapter five there, we might think, see, Esther missed her chance. Esther missed her opportunity. She should have spoke up because now it's gonna be too late. Before maybe even she wakes up, Mordecai's gonna be dead. All because she wouldn't speak up, she just keeps planning these parties. When we read verses 9 through 14, we see Haman's delight. And I already mentioned, of course, I mean, he's, a, he's ecstatic over what is happening. He's ecstatic over his position with him and the king invited to this party by Esther, the pride that he must have had leaving, everybody knowing what was happening and what was taking place, uh, to walk out of that place. Like, yeah, it's me, it's Haman. I'm the special one. I'm second only to the, to the king. Look, even the queen loves me. For some reason, he goes home and invites his friends over. And look what scripture says he does. He tells them about all the good things that have happened to him. Now, no doubt his friends already know this. But we're starting to see some more of the characteristics of Haman. That friend that always talks about their kids over and over and over and over again. Congrats, they got a hit yesterday in the game. Okay, move on, right? Over and over. I want to tell you about this and I want to tell you about this. And did you see the car that I got? Did you, did you see my house? Have you, have you seen these things that I have? This is Haman. But yet with all of these riches, with all of this glory, right, that's been bestowed upon him, we see very quickly after the party, it takes no time for him to go many steps outside the door of the king's palace that all of a sudden scripture tells us he's distraught. And he's distraught over one person in this whole kingdom from Ethiopia all the way over to India, this one guy ticks him off so that it changes his whole countenance. No longer is he prideful. No longer is he excited or happy. Instead, all that he can think about is Mordecai and those evil eyes of Mordecai just staring at me not scared of me, not bending down, not kneeling down, nothing. 
In just no time flat, despair comes to Haman. So much so that he decides, along with his wife, to kill Mordecai the next day. It wasn't enough that just a few months down the road, all the Jews would be killed, including Mordecai. No, I need him dead now. So he makes this gallows 70 some feet tall. He wants everybody to see what's going to happen to Mordecai. They want it to be a spectacle. Now, I want us to notice something here because we can look at Haman and we can really see him as the bad guy in this plot. And I think he is. But there's some things that I think we have to understand about him because I think it's something that we get hung up on as well. In this commentary, I'm going to read a little bit of it to you a little bit later, but he has a sentence in here, Ian Duguid, his Esther commentary. He says this about Haman. He says, what Haman craved about all things was not significance. He didn't crave significance, no, but rather being seen as significant. Now, I want you to notice that because I definitely notice that in my own life and I really notice it in other people's life because we're better at seeing other people's faults than our own, Correct. But what Haman really struggled with here was not that he was significant because if we look at his life, there is absolutely no doubt at all he was significant. He was second only to the king. I mean, the king gave him the king's ring to pass anything, that all of it could happen. So the fact that he was significant could not be debated at all. There was no debate whatsoever in that. But there was a problem. Not everybody in the land saw him as significant. In fact, one person, one person didn't see him as important and it ruined him. It absolutely ruined him. Now, the reason I say be careful of how you treat Haman is because exactly what I said earlier. I think we all struggle with this. I want you to acknowledge how busy I am. I want you to acknowledge what I am doing here right now. I want you to acknowledge my thought, not not just by listening, but by doing my thought. I want you to acknowledge me. Is that not what we crave? Is that not the things that we desire so much in our life? Or I can take it to a very spiritual level, which we're going to get to in a little bit. I I can jump ahead. God, I just want you to lavish me with blessings. Wait a second. It's not enough that you're a child of the king. It's not enough that I tell you you're significant. You want everybody around to see how significant you are to me, right? I mean, in fact, that's even preached in churches. If God loves you, he'll bless you. If you have enough faith, everybody's going to see it because of the blessings God continues to pour on you. Listen, that's a lie of Haman. That's the lie that Satan had convinced Haman was so important that eventually would lead, as we're going to see, to Haman's demise. You see, we are told in Matthew chapter six, verse two through four, it says, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. What is being addressed here? What's being addressed here is acknowledgement, right? It's acknowledgement. Yes, 
give. Who cares what other people think about your giving? Who cares if other people know what you are giving or what it is, right? It's an acknowledgement thing. So not just in, in giving, but also with service and these other areas. As Christians, we are called to serve and to honor our king, not for us to be noticed. We want him to be noticed, not me. I don't need Tim to be put on a pedestal. I want Jesus up there. I want him to be noticed. But yet within the lives of the church, we see the struggle with this. The whole moniker now of celebrity pastor, that should not be a phrase. That shouldn't exist. No pastor should have a desire to be a celebrity. Those don't go together. It doesn't work. Or even the phrase that you hear very often, prosperity gospel preaching, that shouldn't go together. It shouldn't even be a thing. But yet sadly, because we still struggle with the same sin that Haman is struggling with, these things are very real and in fact, hurting the church. Let's move on to chapter six. Chapter six is where we see some things start to get interesting. Look at verses one through three. It says, that night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles and they were read before the king and it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Asurus. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So kind of an interesting thing all of a sudden happens. I don't know why it's talking about how the king sleeps, right? Why is this being put in here? The king couldn't sleep. You might say, I can, I can understand that. Maybe you've been there before, those nights where you just keep thinking about the same thing over and over again and you pray, take it away, but it doesn't go away. And so you see every hour, that's what the king's going through right now. Not able to sleep. So he says out of nowhere, hey, come and read me some of the most boring literature I'd have to think could ever be read. Read some history to me. And it just so happens that they open up to the time that Mordecai saved his life. And he remembers it. And he asks the question, well, what's ever been done for him? And they say, well, nothing. And the king sees that as a problem. Look at verse four. So the king said, who is in the court? Again, just coincidentally, it says, now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest the king hang Mordecai in the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Man, I mean, Haman is the perfect guy to walk in in this situation. He, he's like, what king, what do you want? Well, there's somebody I really love in the kingdom and I want to honor him. What should I do? And Haman's like, it's obviously me. 
I'm the only one at the party with him, with Queen Esther. I'm second in command. He's risen me up among everybody else. This is obviously my time to be acknowledged by everyone. So he comes up with a fantastic plan, does he not? Let's parade him around. Let's put royal robes on him. Let's let it be shouted from the mountaintops. This man is special. This man is important. Ah, but then verse 10 and 11 kick in. It says, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse. And as, as you have suggested, put them on yourself. No, he doesn't say that. That's what Haman thought was coming. He says, and do so for Mordecai, the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone and all that you have spoken. Oh, I can't imagine the pit in Haman's stomach at this moment. So let me see verse 11 says, so Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, led him on horseback through the city square. And look what Haman had to yell. Said, and then and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So at the time when Haman thought Mordecai's head might just pop off his body, he's placing a crown on Mordecai's head. And going through the streets saying, this is the man that the king delights to honor. This is the man that the king loves. What a reversal. What a big turn in the story that just happened and just took place. Mordecai being honored above even Haman at this moment. Look at verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but you will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came in and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Now, I would wonder that if Haman didn't get grabbed so quickly after they said that and rushed off to the banquet, if he would have looked them in the eye and said, wait a second, just yesterday you told me to kill the guy and now today you're saying there's absolutely no way I could ever kill him? Why do I think you're wise? You're so wishy-washy. What changed? It hasn't even been 24 hours. It's been maybe 12 hours and all of a sudden the guy you told me to kill, you're now telling me if I try, I'm going to die. That would have been helpful yesterday. I never would have walked into the king's court at three in the morning to go see if I could go hang Mordecai. I never would have had to then parade him down the street. But we don't get to see Haman's response. We see that he's ushered away, right? He, he's taken away to the, next, to the next banquet. So look at chapter seven. It says, so the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at, any, at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. 
So King Asuras answered and said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? Now we got to stop here for a second. King Asuras is not looking like a smart person anywhere in this book. He lets everybody make decisions for him. He lets everybody twist him and lead him astray. And I'm sure people have wrote books on leadership, maybe based off of Esther. I don't think that's the point of the book of Esther. But I mean, I know how my wife would respond to me in this situation. She'd say, Tim, are you an idiot? You did. You signed it. Do you not remember that? We don't, we don't, we don't get that with Esther here. But look what she says. She says, and Esther said, the adversary and enemy is the wicked Haman. Says, so Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. Probably the best decision he made. He didn't respond in his anger. He went away to think. <clears throat> Says, when the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. So we see here that Esther finally takes her shot. In verses one through four, she finally reveals what all this has been about, what all these banquets have been about of trying to go before the king. And she tells the king very bluntly, I am a Jew. This is who I am. Something that she had been hiding all along. She finally says, I am a Jew. And there is one who is trying to kill all of my people. She says, if, I, if we would have just been sold into slavery, I wouldn't have said anything. But they're trying to annihilate us. They, they want to kill us. And so Esther has this boldness and this courageousness at this moment because again she doesn't know how the king is going to respond he might say you're a Jew well then you are going to die he could easily say that he obviously doesn't care too much for the people by his side he already got rid of one queen and we see he has his second in command killed just like that and so we see this boldness in her as she takes her shot and then in verse 5 through 10, we see the demise of Haman. The king orders his death in one of the greatest reversals that we see in Scripture, where Haman is killed on the gallows that he built himself for Mordecai to die. Instead, that is where he dies that day in that place. Well, as we look at this, I think there's three things that we can see. First of all, in chapter five, we see the importance of remaining faithful during suffering. Esther really is the only one who can really take action for the Jews in the situation that they face. And she knows that and she understands that and she faces extreme repercussions. We know this, we've already talked about this. So much so that she says, if I die, then so be it. But yet we see her faithfulness in this situation. Because she knows she needs to be faithful to God and to the people of God. Even though she doesn't say that, we know that that is true. And so what we see here with Esther is we see a faith 
that lives. We see a faith that survives. We, in fact, we see a faith that thrives even during horrible persecution. There's not much worse persecution that she could be facing or that the Jewish people could be facing during this trial. But yet we see her faith rise during this persecution and, and do what she was called to do. We carry this with us as well today in the face of bad situations, in the face of bad circumstances or bad things happening to us. We are called as Christians to continue to stand on the promises of God firmly. We call him our cornerstone because he is what keeps us firm in our foundation. That's why he's called the cornerstone, Jesus the cornerstone. It's because the truth of that is what holds us. Now, I think one thing that we need to note here is that the persecution that Esther is facing was not because of sin in her life. It wasn't because of bad decisions necessarily that she had made. She's facing persecution because she's a child of God. I think there's times in our life we, we flip the two. We call it persecution as a Christian, but really it's just your sin in your life is causing you some troubles. The sin in your life that you've done of making really bad decisions along the way has gotten you into a position or into a situation that now is causing life to be very difficult and hard. And we like to look at God and we like to put blame on him in that. But really what I think God's response is to us back is your sin has led you here. I got to be honest, counseling people in my office is a difficult thing because a majority of the time that really should be the response. Pastor Tim, I'm struggling with this and I don't know why. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And you start talking about it and you start whittling things down in your life. And the answer is very clearly being defined here. It's very big and bold. And they say, why is God doing this to me? And I want to look at them and say, you've done this to yourself and your sin. You made horrible decisions as a teenager. You started dating this guy. Or you started doing this. You started doing that. That's why you are where you are today. This isn't because God is mad at you. This isn't because God hates you. This is because you have chosen to disobey him over and over and over again. In fact, you're lucky enough to be sitting here breathing. If you do that to me, I'd want to kill you. But being a loving pastor, I guess I try to word it different. And you try to get them to see it in a different way. You see, Esther here is facing real persecution because of who she is. And as Christians, if we are faithful to God, we will face persecution as well because of who we are. Not because of my sin or all these things. No, I'm going to face persecution because I believe in the truths of God through Christ. I believe in his word and I stand on that. And we will face persecution because of that as we are faithful to that. And Peter actually speaks of it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 19. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, I would love to stop there and preach on that passage. Because how many times have you, like myself, went to God surprised why is this happening? God, why, why is America turning against Christians? I'm so confused. Why is it happening? And Peter responds, don't be confused by this. Don't, do not be surprised at what's happening and what's taking place. In fact, look what he says in verse 13. 
but rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Don't suffer because of your sin, he says. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So while we suffer, we continue to do good, entrusting our souls to what? The faithful creator, the promises of God. That's what we have to hold on to, not the things of this world. What keeps my faith going during difficult times, what keeps my faith thriving and expanding isn't me mustering up my faith. It's God reminding me of his promises day in and day out saying, Tim, I'll never let you go. Tim, oh, this world can do all kinds of things to you, but they can't destroy you. They cannot destroy you. These are the things that builds up our faith. In chapter six, we see God's great reversals taking place. And here we see that invisible hand of God that we've been talking about all through Esther, how God's name is never mentioned anywhere in the book, but yet we see his hand slowly turning things and we see his plan kind of unfolding, even though it's in, in difficult situations and in difficult circumstances and stuff we don't understand, yet we see God's hand moving. Even Haman's wife notices this in this chapter. I ridiculed her for how she could switch so quickly. But she obviously knew something about the God of the Jews because all of a sudden in her mind, she thought, "Uh uh-oh, his plan's happening and you can't thwart it, Haman. Don't even try. So even this Gentile notices this happening. All these seemingly unconnected events play out now so that we can see how God orchestrated it all. Why wasn't Mordecai ordered, uh, honored right away? Because <laughs> God had something in plan for Haman. He, he needed Haman to learn something. And so it was going to wait. Now, Mordecai could have pouted and whined, and maybe he did. Why am I not being elevated? Why am I not being lifted up? <laughs> I don't need you to be right now. If I want you to be, you will be. That's what we see happening. That's what we see taking place. Really, if you read all of Scripture... The Bible is full of great reversals like this. And really the whole point of scripture is to point us to one great reversal in particular. And that's what the story of Esther is pointing us to. All these reversals that took place in Esther is pointing us to the biggest reversal that will ever take place in mankind. When Satan thought, you know what? I'm gonna destroy the line of David. And it just never worked out. He couldn't do it. He he couldn't stop it. The kingdom would split. All these different things would happen. But yet it still seemed to just be there. And then all of a sudden the Messiah is on the scene and he takes Jesus aside and tempts him in the desert. Remember that scene? And oh, that didn't work either. So Satan's saying, well, what am I going to do? And we get to the cross. And when Jesus dies and on the cross, he, he says it is finished. 
For those who are reading the story for the first time, you think, Satan won. It's over. The Messiah died. He said all this stuff about the kingdom was going to happen and it didn't happen. He died. He's in the grave. It is, there's no hope. But yet, the great reversal happens. And what God has planned throughout all of eternity is that in Satan thinking he was winning, just put his own nail in his coffin. Because the great reversal was the Messiah must die. And in fact, the Messiah is going to conquer death. So just like Haman thought, I'm going to kill him. Instead, he honored him. Satan did the same thing with Christ. I'm going to kill you. And instead, what Satan did is he showed Christ's power. He showed his power in the greatest reversal that could ever happen in all of mankind. Oh, we think death is the final blow. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. We ask this question, I think, when we we see these reversals in Mordecai's life, we we see this reversal in Scripture with, with Christ. But maybe we ask this question, what about my reversal? When does my reversal take place? When does it happen for me? Mordecai gets honored. When do I get honored? When do I get elevated? When do, when do I get lifted up? I'll be honest. That is the number one question I think I get as a pastor. Not about Mordecai specifically, but pastor, when's my time? When's God going to bless me? When am I going to get this in my life? When am I going to have kids? When am I going to know that my kids are okay? When am I going to know this? When is this going to happen? God, when is God going to do this for me? It's a really hard thing to answer. I want to read a section of this commentary. I already read a little bit of it, quote a little bit of it, do good. He does a good job in answering it. So just just bear with me if you would as I, I read this to you. He says, how should we respond to this reality? Haman unwillingly declared Mordecai's honor. He was forced to declare his praise. So also... Some will unwillingly declare the honor of Christ on the last day. But should we who are his people be unwilling to sing his praises? Should we be among those who are slow to glorify God and give thanks to the lamb that was slain for us? How could that be? How can we not exalt Christ in our hearts as Lord even now? How can we grow tired of praising and shouting his excellence? How too can we be slow to trust in God's providence seeing that he has sent his beloved son to the cross in our place. Will he not also, along with Christ, give us everything we need for our growth and godliness? He says he will in Romans 8.32. Maybe we are still in an Esther 5 situation at the moment, surrounded by enemies on every side, whose plans against us seem to be succeeding. Perhaps we are experiencing the pains and difficulties of living in a fallen world, in a world that seems to exist in the grips of the evil empire. Yet, even if we are misunderstood and mistreated, every wrong will be righted on the last day. Though the evil empire does its worst, it cannot prevail against those who have taken refuge in Christ. Ultimately, its raging will be in vain. Read this and rejoice. And lastly, Indeed, if we are exalting Christ as Lord in our hearts and are trusting firmly in God's providence to do what is good for our souls and to bring glory to himself, why are we so troubled? Why are we so filled with doubts and fears about our own futures? 
or the future of our children or the future of our churches, God will accomplish his purposes, often slowly and imperceptibly, but nonetheless, certainly. Sometimes he will do it through human agents who willingly submit to him. Sometimes he will do it by directing those whose hearts are at enmity to him so that their sinful motives accomplish his perfect purposes. Sometimes he will do it through collaboration of a whole series of seemingly trivial circumstances. But in the light of the great and precious promises of God, this we know for sure. Our God will save his people. In the light of the cross, we know that his salvation cannot be thwarted. In the light of these heavenly realities, what is left for us to do but to bow our hearts and our knees before him and to sing his praises? Listen, I talk to myself when I talk to you about this. It is not okay for me to go whine and complain to God about my circumstances, about how little I have. Listen, God is a father and he wants to hear from us. I'm not saying you don't go before God and say, God, I'm hurting God, I'm struggling. Yes, he wants to hear those things. But I absolutely do not have the right to ever say to God, God, do you not love me enough? God, is it, is it that I haven't mustered up enough faith for you that you're not pouring these blessings on me? God, God why, why is this happening to me? Why are you allowing this to happen to me as if I, I have some better plan? When I, a child of God, understand that Christ has died for me, that I am now adopted into his family, fully righteous through Christ, that I don't have to do anything to earn God's favor, Christ has done it for me, then how could I ever go to God and say, God, you just need to do a little more for me? God, God prove it. Prove it with this. Prove it with that. All these difficult situations and circumstances. God, if you really were good, you'd make them all go away. We then become like everybody else. We stop singing the praises of God and we just sing the woe is me. And as Christians, that is not something that we are called to do or to be. I think it was Scott who quoted the verse or read the verse in Philippians. Whatever is good, Whatever is right, whatever is noble, whatever is kind, think of these things. Think on these things and do these things. That is what we are called to as Christians. And when we look at our God and we look at the Bible that he has given us, it is full of good things that he has done for us over and over and over again. It would have been so easy for God here in the book of Esther to say, you know what? Yeah, just kill those Jews. They didn't go with Nehemiah and them. They must have weak faith. We don't need them. Let them die. But no, yet again, we see God save his people. And lastly, in chapter seven, we see how God is going to deal with the wicked and how he does deal with the wicked. This must be noted. Please hear this. I cannot think of a better time to say this than now. The wicked will not win. It doesn't work for them. Satan lost. It is, it's over with already. We know who wins. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to even have some wish or a hope that one day. No, listen, it's, it's over. Christ has won. Satan is defeated. The wicked 
will not receive glory. It doesn't happen. So let's live like it. Let's act like it. I mean, to put it in words that seem to really fit in today, let's feel that way, please. Let's feel as if we are winners because what I hear is we're not. What I hear on the news, what I see on social media, what I hear in blogs and all podcasts, I hear that the wicked is winning. That's what I hear. I hear that there's no hope. I, I hear that what, we don't know what we are going to do. I, I hear people say, I don't know if we should have kids. Would we want to have kids in a world like this? To me, that just shows a, a lack of understanding is that Christ has already won. Now listen, you've got to understand this too. This does not mean that it doesn't seem as if evil wins sometimes. Look at Haman, second in command. Probably had the most beautiful house in the land, second to the king. Had wise men all around him. From worldly standards, you look at Haman and you say, that guy is winning. That guy is winning the race. Listen, Haman thought it too when he walked in and the king said, what should I do to the guy I want to honor? Well, I'm the one winning. This is what you should do. And if we're honest, when we look at Haman's life, there's part of it that we want because we do feel like he's winning. When we look at the lives of people in this world who to us do no good for the things of God. In fact, we believe they harm the things of God, that they're fighting against the things of God, that they're enemies of God. Yet we look at them and we say, but God, why are they winning? Why do they get to live in that neighborhood? Why do they get to own those things? Why do they get to experience that stuff? Why do they get to go on vacations like that? Why do their kids get to start in the game and mine doesn't? Why does all of these things happen? We, we say, God, they are winning. As long as there is sin on this earth, listen, it's going to seem as if evil is winning. It is going to seem at times in our life as if God does not care. But please, please be reminded, Christian. Tim, please be reminded of this. God cares for us so much that he's already defeated that enemy and he defeated it with the blood of his son. It wasn't at a small price. It wasn't a small cost to God to, to defeat Satan and sin and evil. It cost him everything. It cost him his son. It cost him his son's life. But he did it so that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 can be real and true to us. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, this is the promise that we have, even in a world that seems chaotic. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Parents, the only way your child will ever win is by having their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mention parents because I feel this pull. I see parents shove so much money 
down the throats of their children to make them winners. And none of it leads to success. None of it actually leads to the real definition of winning. Oh, it might equal the winning of this world, but it only leads to death and destruction. But as soon as we get asked maybe to spend some money on our children to study God's word or to learn it or to go to invent, all of a sudden there's pushback all around. How dare you charge us? Do you not know that we, we don't make a lot of money, Pastor Tim? Well, I understand that, but you paid $700 for your kid to have a personal trainer all summer to jump through tires. Your kid's not going to be quick. I can see it. Stop trying. It's not going to work. Or listen, maybe it'll work and maybe they will win. And maybe they'll go on to the Olympics. And maybe they'll be Team USA all over their chest. And maybe they'll win the gold medal. And maybe they'll stand on the podium. And maybe we'll get to praise their name. It means absolutely nothing when they die. Nothing. Nothing when they die. And I've been to too many funerals. I've sat with too many families who've begged and pleaded, please tell me they're going to heaven. Please tell me they're going to win. And I never say, well, yeah, look, they got second place in field day when they were in third grade. They're winners. Or look, you're the boss. You're the winner. Everybody knows if I appealed to that on that deathbed, they would look at me and say, Pastor Tim, that doesn't matter. Why they know that? But yet we do so little, it seems, to care about what really makes us winners. Delighting in the law of the Lord. Saved by his grace. Holding on to his truths and his promises. Above all things. Above everything else. I know I seem very direct. This is me trying to be loving. I'm being honest. Pray for my kids. I'm trying to be loving. This, what we see here, this, this sin of Haman and the, and the death of Haman really could be put on the tombstones of so many people. He lived like Haman. You want to know about him? He lived like Haman. Lived like Haman. Had many blessings in this world, died with none of them. And if I have to guess, I don't know a man's heart, but he's not with God in glory. My hope for me in my life is that on the day that I die, that God says, Christ won for you, Tim. You win. It's not about my basketball accolades. It's not about my family. It's not about how much money I have. It's not even about how good of a pastor I was. It's about what Christ has done for me. And that's my prayer for my kids, that they would declare the same thing. It's what Christ has done for them. Not what dad did. Well, my dad's a pastor. Who cares? What has Christ done for you? Do you hold that? Is that your salvation? Is that your hope? All in Christ. If not, then this other stuff don't matter. I can't force that on them and I can't force it on you. But you have to know within your heart, your relationship with God. Are you more of a Haman or are you more like the one who's trusting in Christ as your hope and your salvation? That he is what makes you win. That he is what saves your soul from eternity in hell forever.
I can't answer that for you. Only you can. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would draw you and lead you to trust in that. I have to share this, this quick story. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but it delighted my soul this week to get a call from a member in our church who was just so excited. You know why? They got to lead someone to the Lord over the phone this week. A friend that, I don't even know if you could really call it a friend. 20 years ago, a friend, yes. But someone they rarely talk to calls them out of the blue and says, I got some questions. And I kind of trust what you're going to tell me. And they were spiritual questions. Why this guy was feeling this in his heart, I don't know. But catch this, just coincidentally, he was. And just coincidentally, he called his friend. Not one time, I don't even think two times, multiple times to say, I got more questions. I got more questions. I got more questions. But by the end of the week, on the phone, one of our members had the privilege of, of asking that friend, have you trusted in Christ completely with your life? And to hear that friend say, absolutely. That's not a coincidence. God wins. God wins. Satan doesn't win. This guy's not part of a church. Doesn't have that in his life. We say, well, how did that happen? He, he, didn't, he didn't come in and get all the feels that would get him ready to be saved. No. You know why? God was pricking his heart. God calls. God saves. And I'm thankful he does. And I'm thankful that he saved me and allows me to win because of him. Let's bow together. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your truth. God, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it in our hearts and our lives. God, I, God we sing that song before I got up to, to preach this morning about approaching your word and the truth of it. God, I, I pray that I haven't messed that up this morning in any way. I hope that the truths of your word were very clear. God, I know for me personally, there's things about the way I deliver a message or the just mannerisms and everything that I, I wish were different. I, I feel oftentimes it's not coming out in a loving way. And I don't mean that. I, it absolutely is. I, I would not be up here preaching if that wasn't the case. But God, I, I just feel the most loving thing for us to know and to understand is the truth of your word, that the lies of this world are real, and that we can be convinced that everybody around us is winning. And yet, as we try to hold on to you, we are losing grip and we're losing. And God, that just isn't the case. That's not what scripture says. First of all, you hold us. I don't hold you. You hold us. And you hold us by your truths and your promises. And so, God, I pray for those in here who are Christians this morning, those who've been saved by your grace, including myself. God, I pray that you would help us to feel and to know and to understand that you have won through Christ for us. And that while the world seems chaotic, while it seems without hope, that just isn't true. Hope is not found in our government. Hope is not found in the things of this world at all. Hope is found in you through Christ. And God, we have that truth. Help us to believe it. Help it to be in our hearts so fresh and help us to be willing to have the boldness like Esther to say, if I die, I die, but I am going to be faithful to my God. 
And God, I'm not even saying in an argumentative manner. We don't see that with Esther at all. She does it in a humble way, lovingly, before the king. God, I pray that we'd have that same attitude, that we would just love people so much that, like happened with one of the members here, that just out of the blue calls them, I I think I can trust what you're going to say. God, oh, how I want to be someone like that. That people would say, Tim, I think I can trust your word here. And God, then to be faithful to tell them the truth of your word. God, I pray this morning for that Christian who's just struggling. They're struggling with the things of this world, the, the attacks that are being made on them. Maybe it's because of sin in their life. Maybe it's because of their faith. God, whatever it is, God, I pray that you would help them to see the truth, not to fall for the lies of Haman here, but to trust in you. Put brothers and sisters around them to encourage them. God, I pray for the person here this morning who is not your child. They have never trusted in Christ wholeheartedly for their salvation, to be forgiven of their sins. They've never dealt with that in their life. God, I pray that you would help them to see their desperate need for that and how much you love them. God, I thank you for your goodness. Help us, God, as we sing this last song now to respond to your word however we should. Maybe people want to come and pray. They can do that up here. They can pray at their seat. Whatever it is, God, I pray that we would respond faithfully to your word now. We ask in Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.